All right, everyone. Uh, welcome again to another No Gear Required podcast. Um, here again with me, I have Mike Zibalos, the magician that makes everything work well. And my right hand, left foot, my brother, Jay Zibalos. As a guest today, I have someone which we met a lot of years ago before everything started on his life, basically. I have here with me somebody that is well-known by something that he does, which we're going to go through. So amazing because it's very personal, very unique, and rare, which is very challenging in life today, finding rare things and real things. AG, how are you, sir? The toe hold, right? The flip-flops <laughs> that everyone wants to have, but very few are lucky to. Master Jean-Jacques Machado. It's such an honor to be here. I, I can't believe I'm sitting next to you. I'm in a, I'm a, a fan in, in, uh, in shock. Man, trust me. Uh, I think in, in my belief is all of us in life do have something that would be better than anybody. And you have a special gift that you do something as an artist. Thank you. Not only do as a martial artist, but you're an artist developing and creating something that it's your vision. It's how you see it, and uh, a lot of people will be surprised and see how amazing what you produce is. Thank you. And starting with that, and I know as I'm so curious, and I was reading about you, how that whole idea to start making, and with a, such like a personal, I think it's passion. You saw something that nobody else could see and here we are today and I'm lucky I have three generations of <laughs> Toho's all this flip flops that is less forever true. How did that idea come up with you man? Tell me about that hiking that you went to some issues on your yeah. own flip flops and it's like no I gotta make something that lasts forever. Yeah. Um so I was on a hike in, in San Diego up on Palomar Mountain and my flip flops the thong had pulled through and broke on me and i was like four miles and that happens to so camp. many people <laughs> in the wrong time <laughs> and the type of flip-flops they were it wasn't the type where you could push like the plastic thing back through just it pulled through and the flip-flops were done so after thinking for a few minutes i took some paracord wrapped it around my foot and was able to kind of hobble back to camp but the paracord was every with every step it would cut back and forth between my toes leaving my toes super bloody by the time I got back. So at that time, I was a military contractor, and I got sent over to Japan, and I wound up on the island of Okinawa. And I remember we were walking in the jungle, and there was like this little hut. And we went inside, and we were talking to this um, Okinawan who was a leather craftsman. He had these very beautiful bags, wallets, but it was very, very rural. It wasn't something that very many people would have access to. So I talked to him and I asked him about making a pair of flip-flops. And he said he's never done it before. And what were my ideas? And we, I had a translator with me, but kind of with a rough sketch, I told him what my thoughts were. I had pondered the idea for a while on what exactly I'd want from my pair of flip-flops. And over the course of a few weeks, he made me a pair. I wore them around the island, going through the jungle. And the Okinawan jungle is like how you'd picture the Vietnamese jungle, like a Viet Cong jungle, just giant centipedes, tons of snakes, spiders, scorpions, everything wants to kill you all the and time. You, and you wear flip-flops. Always, <laughs> always. I'm, 
the only time you'll see me in shoes if like I go to a UFC fight or like a nice dinner, sometimes I'll put on shoes. But as soon as I put shoes on, there's a clock ticking. Maybe about two hours and I gotta get them off my feet. My feet just get stagnant and there. I gotta move them. I feel but but you know what is amazing is a lot of people in today's time they don't realize how much we need to have no shoes. Yes. You need to have air on our feet. And that's why a lot of people that have problems on their feet is it's huge. It's, it's from Nike. It's a way for us to have connection with nature. It's, yeah. To have no shoes on. Really throughout all the time, shoes have always been made from leather. Um, originally, like thousands and thousands of years ago, the first shoes were like a boot with a heel on them that was designed to hold, I think, Persian riders in stirrups so their feet wouldn't slide out of the, the stirrups when, when on a horse. And then they just kind of evolved from there. There's flip-flops that are almost exactly like ours, some modifications and difference to the foot shape and the toe box uh, 6,000 years ago that they found in ancient Egypt. So that style has been around forever. So I didn't create flip-flops. I didn't invent flip-flops. All I did was just customize them the way that I wanted to for my feet. And what happened was a friend asked for a pair and then another friend asked. And then one of our students from the gym asked and it kind of went on like that to almost five years later, we have a pretty well-recognized brand in jujitsu. We have flip-flops all around the world, pretty much everywhere except um, Antarctica. We've, sh we've shipped everywhere around the world. And kind of the gist of what we do is we use a really old world technology, really high quality vegetable tan leather and um, an orthopedic core and a real special tuck under design with really high quality straps, which is very indicative of how shoes have always been made. They are formed to your foot and then over time they break in the leather stretches and it gets a very, very custom feel over time. Now with modern shoes like Nike, what they did is they created a type of running shoe and that style of like a synthetic plastic shoe with the big air cushion on the bottom, they're really cool for, for some sports and they're really cool for style, but they're not very functional with how the human foot is designed to work. They make you strike heel first where you should be landing almost on the balls of your feet or landing on the balls and the heels almost simultaneously with the, with the ball touching first. If you watch how a kid runs, like a baby, not a baby, but like a one or two-year-old, you'll see they always run like on the balls of their foot leaning forward. And then we start hobbling their foot and putting it in this cast. And then over the years, their foot strength, the dexterity, the ligaments, all that stuff starts to yeah, atrophy within of, the shoe. A lot of people don't realize, oh, I have a back pain. It's from your feet. Exactly. Yeah, everything comes from your feet. Um, but so what we do is we just created them. They're completely flat. There's no arch because your foot doesn't need an arch support just like your neck doesn't need a neck support. You don't wear a neck brace throughout the day. The muscles in your neck hold your neck up. The muscles, the tendons, the ligaments in your feet hold your foot the way they are. Now, granted, our feet have become so atrophied over the years, it's hard for a lot of people. So your foot should just be on a relatively flat-ish surface, and then the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments is what hold your feet up. And if your feet are weak, you're going to have problems with that at first. Exactly. And then constantly the muscle work in the proper way to make sure it's no pain. It's funny you mentioned um, about your pain because uh, one of our students, and it was even last night, he showed up of his flip-flops, which yes. is made with wood. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's the real Japanese guy. He's in, it is flat. Yeah. That's amazing. How did the bottom look? Man. It's the funny thing is when I try to walk with, mm -hmm. it goes like clack, clack, clack. 
when he walks, no sound. Interesting. And I'm not, I'm not sure, but I know in the bottom you don't have rubber, you don't have anything. It's literally wood. Yeah. But it's incredible. He, he's been using that since he was, I guess, a little kid. But the way he walks is so different than the way I walk. Right. And that's incredible. And I see such a similarity when, when the flip-flops, evidently yours is, as the time goes by, gets molds, molds on the shape yeah, shapes of your, your foot. foot, which is incredible. And one of the things that, so the big factor that causes that is the vegetable tan leather. And what that is, is for thousands of years, you'd get an animal hide, you'd throw it into a drum, um, it would spin, taking off the hair, and then you would add um, things called tannins, which is like a powder that comes from tree roots, tree bark, minerals in the ground. And it's very uh, it's a very organic type of way to tan the leather, to treat the leather. And what you get is the, the tannins bond to the collagen in the leather, and it makes a very strong, um, firm leather. And from there, your body could interact with that real easy. There's no toxins in there. When you put your foot in like a Chinese pair of flip-flops, that rubber, that... Everything's, pro- ar- everything's artificial. It's all artificial. But it's also some of that stuff is really toxic because the rubber, the way they blend that stuff, you, you're directly soaking up sweat and pores and your foot's interacting with that in a way that could be doing a lot of damage to your foot. And a lot of our... Our energy from our body, it's comes from the hands, palm of your hands mm. and our feet. From your feet, yeah. And as you said that, I remember I was in China then and almost every store you go, outside has a, sometimes an old lady or old guy washing people's feet. Mm. They make sure and they go, it needs to be clean for the energy. Yeah. For you to feel the energy from for nature. Yeah. And also one thing that um, I was very impressed reading about you, how you make um, all the flip-flops, is how conscious you are with the animals, with the nature, where you get the leather, the real leather, yeah, I where, that too. where everything goes and, and keeps the cycle, the life going on without having any impact to the nature. That's a, that's a real big part. So the, the cowhide that the vegetable tan leather comes from, that's from the American cattle industry. There's tons of that stuff. And it's a good way to celebrate the animal. But if you're going to, if you're going to kill a deer, you want to use all of the deer, right? The native Americans did that. They'd use the hoofs, the bones, the antlers, the hide, everything, eat the meat. So with the cattle industry, same thing, the hides used in the saddle industry and a bunch of other, other industries. Well, one of the things we do, um, we use a lot of exotic leathers, stuff that comes from Africa. And it's important to explain because the default kind of reaction is, I can't believe you use that leather. But when you hear why we use it and how we use it, it makes a big difference. So yes. for example, we work with a big park in Zimbabwe and everybody loves the animals. Everybody loves elephants. Everybody loves zebras. Everybody loves all these animals, but nobody writes a check or very few people write a check to support these parks. So what these parks have to do is operate with a almost zero, I should that's probably the wrong term, a very, very low budget, like razor thin, some donations, but mostly what they get is people will pay to come in and take photos, you know, photographers, national geographic, stuff like that. They'll do tours, but the animals, they're very conscious of, um, keeping a, a, a good herd. 
And for example, we'll use an elephant as an example. They're herd animals, they're very social, they have great memories, and they interact with each other very, very, very well. If one of them gets sick, gets a disease, gets attacked, and let's say that wound gets infected, it's gonna suffer, and it suffers bad. So what they try to do is being good stewards of the land, they wanna humanely euthanize an old or a sick animal. They have to bring in a veterinarian, they have to fly him in, they have to track down the animal, set up a camp, and then euthanize it, then set up kind of security to make sure, you know, as they're dealing with the animal, you know, a tiger, or excuse me, a lion or something doesn't, you know, doesn't, yes. doesn't hurt them. So the cost of that is extremely high. They, they, the way they try to recoup some of that cost is they'll take the bones and they'll sell them to museums and scientists. And my understanding, the, the bones are used to kind of like shear up like woolly, mam woolly mammoth exhibits so that they could kind of make up where the bones are missing. They'll take the hide, they'll turn it over to the government, and the government has a very strict, meticulous process on tanning that hide. And then they'll in turn sell that hide to try to recoup some of the veterinary cost and to go to park funding. And then with the meat, if it's something that can be salvaged, they'll give it to one of the local villages. And then if the, if the animal does have ivory, like ivory tusks, they take those and they put them in a secure vault where they keep all the stuff that they may get from poachers and they seize and things like that. So they really try to honor the animal by utilizing everything and then trying to recoup some of the cost. Well, in turn, we got proposition to buy some elephant leather years ago. And the first thing I told my broker was like, absolutely not. And then when they told us how it works and why the park sells it and the government controls it and it goes back to funding, we reconsidered because it was for a great cause. And now we write huge checks for us. They're huge checks back to those parks. Um, really every month. And a hundred percent of that money goes back to the park. So for an example, if they come and they say, Hey, we got a eight by eight elephant hide or a, um, wildebeest or cape buffalo or something like that or, or a hippo we'll have to write them a check that money goes directly back to the park the park gets all that money and then it's up to us whether we sell it or not most of the time i sit on that stuff for years you know we sell a lot of flip-flops but there's such a huge variety that people can choose from some guys will buy sharks some guys will buy elephants some guys will buy wildebeest so we have to put all the money up up front and then next time they ask if we want to buy some more, I'll still have some of the old stuff. I'll say yes, because it's for a good cause. It's amazing, too, because um, unfortunately, not every business has that conscience that you have to keep the life cycle going on and evidently help all the local people. And as you explained, the way they do things, it's incredible because you're not taking anything. You're actually putting back everything and making such a, a, a quality flip-flops. I don't know, all of the ones that I have from you still lasting, and I'm sure it's going to last forever. And uh, and that's another thing is the kind of energy you get from those. And it's something that it's only if, if you have one, you understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the flip-flops, we kind of start off by saying they're not for everybody. They're expensive. They're handmade. They're not in everyone's budget. And not everybody are flip-flop guys. Yeah, but a lot like of people don't realize too is this. Sorry to, to cut you. Is a lot of people know um, I'm going to go with this cheaper thing here. But what happened is what are you going to get out of that is going to be problems for you. I'm going to buy a cheap flip-flop. Then you're going to have a back pain. Then the flip-flop not last forever. Then... And I think at the end is not even an investment, but it's cheap mm -hmm. for what you can get out of the shoes that you make, man. It's amazing. 
Because you're getting more. Than, you. You're getting more than just the sh the flip flop. You're getting the whole experience behind it, and and your kind of contribution to your cause. You know, I think that's pretty amazing. Man, and and you know, when it's hard to get, everybody wants it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody wants your flip flop, man. Everyone. Yeah, we've been blessed that we've had a lot of um, real positive support. A lot of people have supported what we did. And early on, we weren't very good at making flip-flops. At the time, we thought we were. And maybe five years from now, I'll look back on today and be like, I can't believe people bought those. But our goal is just like jujitsu, to get 1% better every yeah. single day. And, and it's a learning process constantly. And, and you're so humble in a way that I can tell the flip-flops are just getting better and better. Uh, and the amazing thing is that personal. Customizable, one the, absolutely. One yeah. of the things I love it and happen here have some flip flops like everybody else, and at the end of the class, somebody took it mine because <laughs> they all look the same. Yeah, common story. Until I got my toe hold, then when that happened, everyone looked, oh, that's the master flip flop. Don't touch that one. <laughs> and mine <laughs> have my name on it too, so yeah, no one's, and, no one's oh, touching man, mine. Thank you for those yes, guys and look at this. Thank you. So the flip flops can represent your rank, your school something you're into, um, uh, a hobby you like. We could really customize them and make them suit your personal like. I think of flip-flops represent people's soul because mm. how they ask you to make it, the design, it has a lot to do with the person, man. It's their soul yeah. right on their feet. And right. We can entirely handcraft them in Las Vegas. We have a three-car garage, turned it into a shop, and... Day and night, we're making flip-flops constantly. Yeah, and, and I saw the viewers and every day, everybody that's listening to us is going to be able to access and see everything that's done the behind the scenes. It's an incredible dedication and work. And uh, what a difference from a few years ago and now in terms of how big you are today compared to five years ago. Uh, how was that? Because we met each other some time ago. Mm -hmm. And you asked me, hey, do you remember me? Evidently, I remember <laughs> most of my students. On the early days, I have classes that, because of the distance where I lived, I used to be late mm -hmm. or showing up on the evening class. That was the reality at the beginning of our school. But how was that experience of of you getting involved in martial art, any specific jujitsu, how, how that happened? How did you end up in my school? So um, my coach knows this, but not a lot of people know when I took my first class. My very first class was in 1990. I was about 13 years old and my brother was a professional skateboarder in San Diego. That's where we're from Oceanside. And he's six years older than me, right? So his friend, Jerry, was like two years older than him. So maybe he's 20 years old. I'm 13. And he ran into this guy named Nelson Montero. I know. Nelson is, uh, comes from the same schools that I did come in Brazil, the Gracie Baja. Yeah. And he had this school in his garage yes. on the beginning. I've been to that school. But jiu-jitsu then was nothing like it is now. We didn't even know what... I was a kid. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know... I, I knew nothing. But my, but my brother's friend, Jerry, would met him, I think, surfing or something in Encinitas. And he would go to his garage and he would, you know, do a class here and there. It wasn't like a normal program, but you'd go and you'd do a class. So he would come back and he would show me this arm bar. And I was like, that's awesome. And growing up in Oceanside, it was like a tough neighborhood. We all fought each other. And, you know, and I was much younger and all the older kids, you know, I was at the beginning of being a teenager. And all the guys I hung out with were like, 
18 years old. So I always got beaten up, right? So I wanted to learn like this arm bar and I learned like uh, a thing was called a Mata Leon, right? The rear naked choke. And then um, he started tagging me along to Nelson's and, you know, we'd pay 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever Man, we had. I we remember like, teaching privates for $20 an oh, hour really? class. <laughs> that, was, that was the early days. And there was like, I knew a triangle, uh, Mata Leon, that's a rear naked choke, correct? Am yes. I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah. And, um, a triangle arm bar and a rear naked in, choke. In the early days too, is um, uh, most of the class in, in the jiu-jitsu schools that were open at that particular time was a very basic techniques from mounting, little past the guard, yeah. and arm bar sweep, and back choke, and control. The classes were not advanced as today time. It was very, I remember teaching classes, man, five techniques forever. Yeah. and. You're exactly correct. And to this day, my jujitsu is still that five techniques. That's all I got yeah. years later. But um, so we would go and then he opened up a gym and it was never anything that we were would go on a regular, maybe once a week if we could afford it. You know, we were poor kids. And then I remember my mom got a house in Carlsbad, which is not far from Encinitas, and I was able to go. And then um, when the UFC started, it made it more popular. And at that time, he gave me a blue belt right when the UFC started, because I was one of the better guys in that class with a new wave of all these young guys. And I had that blue belt for like 20 years. Or yeah, oh, no, no, sorry, about 10 years. And all through the early 90s, I would train periodically and people were getting into it and it was just a thing I did. But I was always, it was always something that I used maybe for evil, right? I'd get in a fight, I would choke somebody out. <laughs> survival, you know? That's, that was survival, Or man. just survive like my brother. You know, they were surfers and skateboarders, so they man, were always beating us up as kids. It's always some kind of an argument going on. But no idea back then did I realize what we were doing would turn into such something so special. I would have no idea. I mean, who knew jiu-jitsu would be? I remember my brother said something to me that he, he convinced Nelson Monteiro to open a school. Like, oh, I don't know, have a school. Like, man, open a school because we we had a school in our garage in Redondo Beach, and uh, he finally convinced Nelson to open a school in San Diego, and uh, and he did, and here we are today. Yeah. And on this whole process, man, how how did you end up at Tenth Planet? How is that whole transition? And and I think it's almost a similarity in time and. The growth of the toe holds and the mm -hmm. tournaments and the jiu-jitsu, I mean, everything was together. How has that happened, this whole communication, this whole mix? Yeah, it's such a, um, jiu-jitsu is such a small world. Everybody knows each other, but I had trained on and off, you know, I was a military contractor, so I was in Japan, I was a... A manager for LA Fitness. You, so I was always you, working. Yeah, I saw your record, man. You did, if I'm not wrong, I saw Apple there. You yep. did a lot of. I was in senior leadership for Apple. So my jobs were always super like work intensive, long hours, making good money. And maybe I would drop by a gym a month. But maybe, I, maybe. Yeah, I saw. Can you name it for me? Because I saw, I don't know, five, six, or seven different high ranking to me positions yeah. in the companies that you so work for. So I worked for. for LA Fitness. Um, I was a military contractor for two different companies. One of them was a private company, and then one of them got converted into a, a government company. Because um, during the Obama administration, he tried getting rid of contractors, yes. but what we did was so vital. We did like a lot of amphibious training that they kind of rolled us into a government program. So I did that for a long time. And then I worked for Apple part-time 
and they needed somebody who had lived in Vegas previously, which I had. They needed somebody with management experience, which I had. They needed somebody that can go to Vegas, fix one of their flagship stores, and not fall into the Vegas trap of gambling, drugs, girls, things like that. So um, they sent me out there. Steve Jobs sent me out there. And we turned one of their stores around and made it extremely profitable. And so much of what I do nowadays, I learned from Apple. You know, it's jujitsu and it's Apple are the two things that probably shifted how we operate our company. You know, it's all about respect. It's high quality of customer focus. It's extremely detailed process. And at the end of the day, the only thing I care about is making the best product. That's all I care and about. You, and you do. Thank you. And you do, for sure. I try. I'm super hard on myself. I, man. Every and, flip-flop I've ever made, I hate. I can't stand any of them. It's fine, but then you <laughs> never stop. That's the, that's the best thing. You never stop. Yeah. And how is that whole process you... You end up in Vegas. You end up moving there. So Jerry, the same guy, my brother's friend, he went up coming to Vegas. And in high school, I completely skipped out on high school. I was coming to Vegas, hanging out with him. We would train a little bit. We'd go over to a school that uh, John Lewis had back in the old days. John Lewis, yes. And always, I always casually trained, always. Um, and there was times where I would be more dedicated, but it was always casual training. And that kind of got me exposed to being in a Vegas. I really liked it. I was never a gambler, never really a drinker. I mean, I'll have a yeah, cocktail. And then people but, sometimes get the wrong idea because you live in Vegas. Yeah. And doesn't mean you, you have to be part of that part of Vegas. Yeah, Vegas is a super nice town. It's extremely outdoorsy. We got some of the best mountain biking, rock climbing, hiking, water skiing, wakeboarding in the world. It's super nice. It's really hot in the summer, but it's just like San Diego most of the rest of the year. Minus like the middle of summer, the middle of winter, the rest of it, it's really nice. It's amazing how they turn that middle of nowhere into a paradise. Yeah. And now, like, you live over there, you, you know all the right places to be. And is there any, on the outside, the outdoor things, mm-hmm. is there any inspiration there for you to do your flip-flops? So there is. So living in Vegas, it's one of the, it's one of the hottest places on Earth. But right down the street is Death Valley, which is the hottest place on Earth. And the ground is just, it's sharp, hot rocks. It's a great testing ground for our flip-flops. Because if they can handle the terrain there, the cactus, the thorns, they can handle anywhere. You mentioned that now, and one thing I have to say, I never had my feet sweat wearing your flip-flops. I have a flip-flops and never sweat. Yeah. And a bunch of flip-flops that I have, I have to take out of my foot because it's even leave a mark of sweat. So that's that vegetable tan leather, that high-quality leather. If you can, I like to talk a little bit about the leather part. Yes. So there's a couple aspects to leather, right? There's leather, let's say, on your couch, right? Uh There's leather that's in a Ferrari. There's leather you see on a saddle. Maybe there's leather on like a dog collar if you have a pet. So um, full-grain, top-grain leather is the very surface of the leather. That's where it's its absolute strongest. As you start going down the leather, it gets more fibery. What they'll do is they'll take the leather and they'll shave off the bottom part. So let's say if you, a piece of leather is a half an inch, they'll shave off most of it and that goes into a scrap pile. And it's just fibers, like you would see particle board wood. Yes. They mulch that together and they make what's called genuine leather out of it. That's crap leather. So if you ever see anything that's called genuine leather, it's the mixture between- It's, it's the, good to know. <laughs> it's the leftover fiber from full grain leather. 
And oftentimes it's mixed in with a bunch of synthetics. It's funny because it says genuine. It's like, wow, that's such a nice yeah. word. That must be good. Yeah. And then the fake, you see like in a sofa, it has that pebbling. That's fake. It's all fake. So there's a bunch of different grades of leather. Most of leather is crap. And to answer your question, when you put yourself up against like a, um, a rubber surface, your body has no place for that moisture to go. It so feels it like it can't breathe. Exactly. Flip-flops are different. They're going to absorb that moisture and they're going to disperse it in other areas of the flip-flop. So where you're standing, the sweat will absorb and off the sides, it'll disperse and vent out. Because I had that in mind and I never asked you and uh, I just thought about it, but you said heat. Uh, I never sweat my feet on those flip-flops or maybe I did and just <laughs> yeah. disappear on that. Yeah, so using real leather is such a difference for your feet. And if you've never used it before, it's 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 a big difference from what we're used to using. As I was mentioning earlier, we're always putting our foot on like um, petroleum products, fake rubbers, fake synthetics, and it's not good for your feet. And who knows what's leaching back into your, your foot from oh, that definitely. stuff. Yes, definitely. It's like when they make those toys and they have so many things and kids put in their mouth and I mean yeah and that's why I'm saying when you say it's not everybody can have your flip-flops but I think the idea is you should have because you're you're putting your money in something that is healthy for you not only the style which is amazing man I I look at the whole floor and I see a bunch of flip-flops and suddenly mine yeah sparking out the red one my name on it's like well that's really yeah. Cust- really something man custom stuff is becoming really popular nowadays in a world where everything's exactly the same there's very few things you Everybody, can get that are made just for you and i'm sure a lot of people put their soul their personality into the orders they make with you if you can is there any what would be i would say some of the most interests flip-flops you made or request Oh, so man. the most difficult, probably the one that's the most desired is Stingray. So Stingray is really hard to describe, but if I could, it's almost like a small bed of polished pearls, really tiny pearls, maybe the size of a small bearing. And you can't cut it, you can't burn it, you can't slash it, but it's supple to where if you curl it up into a ball, it'll curl up when you lay it flat and try to like stab it it won't cut and we have really strong steel tools that i use to like cut through the leather and we've had the stingray shatter thick heavy steel before in 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 all the orders that you get mm-hmm. and actually people have the choices of what kind of leather they want yes not only the style but i want this type of leather and you basically have access of all kinds of yeah we're doing a pair of flip-flops right now for a gentleman that lost his big toe. So we're able to reshape the flip-flop to be able to fit and put the thong on a different toe. But you only get that from a customization. We have a lady who's in a wheelchair and she wants them just solely for fashion. She's never used her legs before. She's She's been in a wheelchair and she wants them just simply because she wants something that fits her feet. She can't find anything that, f- that fits her feet. They're different sh- sizes. They're shaped differently. And what we do is you go to the website, you order a size 10, right? I don't pay any attention to that. I'm going to shoot you an email. I'm going to get measurements of your feet. I'm going to have you take a ruler, put them next to your feet. That way I get a good indication for what your foot looks like. And then we make the flip-flop based on how it should fit. So flip-flops should always be a little bit bigger, 
people tend to so buy people, them in they a have store different size small. foot sometimes they yes have... exactly one will be shorter one will be wider and then a, another thing with the flip-flops is as they break in you can look at them and tell what your feet are doing if they're worn heavy on the side, you can tell that you have like a strong pronation on your foot or you can really kind of monitor what your feet are doing based off of the imprint that you're leaving behind on the flip-flops. And, and I remember I, it, the amazing thing to me is, did you ever dream, did you ever thought you would be so involved in a touch with something that it's because I noticed too and I have to say in all the flip-flops that you make it's such with a good care with such a good passion to make to the art that also has your signature into in every single pair did you ever thought you're going to be coming from so many different high-rank work military and apple Suddenly, man, I love to do those flip-flops. That was my question. Like, was it inspired because of what happened to your foot? It or, was, yeah. So it was just a, the So the, when the flip-flops broke um, and I met that craftsman in the jungle of Japan, he made a flip-flop for me. I didn't have the leather skills. So I kind of told him what my ideas were. He made something similar. I wore them. I loved them. I wanted to get them remade again by him. But going back to the jungle, it's, you know, it's impossible to get back to Japan and fly down to Okinawa. It's just super expensive. So at one, one day, I just set out to do it myself. And I spent thousands of dollars just completely trying to make my own flip-flops. I don't want, never wanted to start a business. I never wanted to start a business. And I just kept failing. I just couldn't get it. And I was so stubborn. And maybe it's something that we get from jujitsu where, when you can't figure something out, you just relentlessly keep going. I just never stopped. And then eventually I got just a little glimpse and another little glimpse and another little glimpse. And then years later, even today, I still feel like I don't know anything, you know? And when my buddies come over and they watch me work in the shop, they're like, you're such a craftsman. I'm like, I'm an idiot. I don't feel like I know anything. So it's just the relentlessness. I think that you get from jujitsu. I just never wanted to give up. And maybe from being in jujitsu, we always have to learn new stuff. So it makes my mind open to learning new stuff. And it was just tons of trial and error. And then, like I said, my buddy asked for a pair. And then my other buddy asked for a pair. And next thing you know, we have thousands and thousands of and, pairs and, out there. And what do you think and how, how Toho is ahead on your vision? Where you'd like to see your company to reach out? Because I know in that fighting world, especially the jiu-jitsu community, I was able to see a lot of people, I was showing the flip-flops and very thankful for, and again, they last forever. Where do you see, where you wanna see that company to be at? Because it's something that um, I asked you and you said, no, I like to stay and keep more personal. Because I'm sure you take a product like that, I'm sure a lot of stores would like to carry yeah. your flip-flops. So you ask a great question. So I, we've since took on a business partner, pretty famous guy. And um, his vision was, we got to get these flip-flops exposed to more people. More people need this, right? So this is healthy. You understand? This is something that you're doing that a lot of people will start having some health issues because they're wearing the proper shoes. And that's something that is way bigger than people understand. It's not just a flip-flop. It's something that brings yeah. you energy, makes you have more contact with nature, and 
helps your whole body. That's the thing. Well, and, and you said something we were talking earlier, and it's still sticking in my head about, you know, um, we die from the feet. You die from the feet up. Yeah. yeah. When your feet are constantly in a shoe all day, they don't move, right? So take your hands, if you're listening, just take your hands and open them as wide as you can and close them and open them and close them. And then try doing that with your feet. If they're in, that's what they should be doing all day. They should constantly be moving all day and they don't. Inside shoes, they just stay stagnant. It's no different than if you're in a car for six hours. How do you feel afterwards? Man. Your back's tight, every, your hamstrings hurt. Every life in earth comes from the soil. Mm -hmm. That tells you that you should be in contact with the soil. Because every human being, everything that grows comes from the soil. Yeah, I, I agree. And the more you wear those big shoes, the less connection you have with earth. And there we go. A lot of people don't realize how important it is to have your feet up, your feet without anything surrounded. So maybe I didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. No, no. You asked, where do I see us going? So um, our business partner, Brian Callen, he um, seen what we were doing and he's had bad feet for a long time. And he got a pair of our flip-flops and he was like, dude, he's like, there's something about these. I don't know what it is. He's like, I can't articulate it. I don't got the words for it. He's like, but my feet feel different. He's like, they're still hurt, but I've only had the flip-flops for a few weeks. But he's like, I notice the difference. He's like, I noticed them getting better. So he wanted to bring this to more people, you know, just grow our social media and just let more people know about it. And like I said, we're not for everybody, but the people who need this and want this, we want to be there for him. So my goal right now is to make the best flip-flops in the world. My goal five years from now is to make the best flip-flops in the world. And my goal 10 years from now is to make the best flip-flops in the world. And that's the only thing I care about. And if you're not there yet on your vision, you're pretty damn close. Yeah, thank you. for sure. Thank you. To me, I feel like I don't know anything. Every day, I, every day, I experiment with something brand new. The flip flops I have on today, I made them yesterday. They have cork but, in them just but, to test it. But this is the vision of an artist. This is the vision of someone who wants to improve. The way you see things is different than the way we see things. You already see things way ahead of us in this specific point here. The flip flops, you're way ahead of every single person. That's why you make such a criticism on yourself because you're already, oh, I already know this. I already saw this, but I want to see what about that one? What about this one? I mean, you're already seeing way ahead, the leather, the shape, the kind of thickness, and this is amazing. And also when people make the orders, do you get anything from their orders? Also like, hmm. That's, that was a different order that actually helped me into all the things to make flip-flops also this way. Quite a bit. Like I had mentioned with the gentleman who's missing his big toe and, and some of the foot problems people have, it, it lets me kind of, I've always made flip-flops that I've liked, but over the years it's made me kind of make flip-flops that other people will need based off of things their feet are doing, things that I've noticed with feet, things that just are important, like really strong anti-slip tread. We use a really high quality Vibram tread. Everything on our flip-flops made in America. Um, all the components are really, really high quality. And so some of the leather manufacturers, like the guys who make the leather we use, when I first started, they wouldn't even sell it to me 
because they wanted to make sure their stuff was used by the highest craftsmen available. I, I like the fact that you said made in America. Uh, everything, 100%. So many it. more things should be made here. Yeah. And I know we can make so many things here. And and I see the, the growth, the beginning of a company is America. That's the American dream. And I'm right here having you just teaching me so much about the vision that you had, the business, and evidently the, the incredible part of having the jiu-jitsu, being part of that and the growth, I think the experience that you had, I think also the friends that you made. And going back to that question, how how did you end up at 10th Planet? Mm. How was that happening? So I think what you just said applies more to you than me. So without Jean-Jacques, we wouldn't have the jiu-jitsu that I use to apply to my flip-flops. So a lot of this comes from you. If you wouldn't have brought what you brought to us and taught us what you taught us, I wouldn't be where I was. I'd probably be in prison or something if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for the lessons that you taught us and the people like Eddie Bravo that taught my coach, you know, that teaches me on the daily basis, Coach Casey Halstead in Las Vegas, one just, of the best coaches ever. Man, we just had him last week and um, incredible was guy. It? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, incredible it guy. Is. He's a... Uh, so when, he's something else, man. When he came to Vegas, um, I had already... You were already there before. I was already in Vegas, yeah. So he had moved out there, was setting up the gym. And within the first week of him opening up the gym, we got in contact. I told him I wanted to start training again. I told him I was fat and old and, and wanted to get back in shape. And I didn't realize how much you just changed over the last few years, where people were rolling for leg locks, and I didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> It was literally like leaving school in the seventies, doing out doing math and coming back to like calculus. And I was so confused and just still doing my like four or five moves. But I think that's just the way, to, you know, so been there six years now, um, got a brown belt from him. Worst brown belt there ever was. I think he just gave it to me out of sympathy just because I've been around for so long. See how that tells you how much quality is in your product. Because you've so hard on yourself to make the best of the best in what you do, and this is. But, but I really is, am the worst. This brown is belt. this is a quality the way you you push yourself and you see things. That's that's some, something that not many people have it. And since you brought it up, I just wanted to ask really quick. Again, talking uh, before we started rolling, um, you mentioned that physics is kind of your thing. I am a nerd for physics. Where, where did that come from? From diving. So when I was a kid, we'd go to like the video store to rent VHSs, and there was a tiny section, like one yeah. section. A lot of people have no idea what I know. VHS I know. is. <laughs> I tell I turn the class say VHS, and they see face look at me like, "What the hell, are you talking about VHS?" There would be like the Disney movies. I didn't watch cartoons as a kid. I didn't do any of that stuff. It was um, National Geographic had like three or four videos out. There was some scientific stuff and I would just rent maybe 12 videos and just go in a circle watching that stuff constantly. And when we got cable TV, it was National Geographic. It was um, Discovery Channel and it was science stuff always. My math sucks. My spelling's good with an iPhone, but my science and physics is really high. I've always had a huge like love for those things and a good understanding. And then being an accomplished scuba diver, physics is so important. So just having to understand like everything with physics. Like if I listen to a professor explain something to me, I get it right away. And I don't understand how other people don't get it. You know, when they talk about molecules and pressures and stuff like that, I'm like, 
uh, but it's just like my little like ability I have. It's the only thing I'm good at. Then I'm, I'm, flip -flops then I'm going like, what, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm lost not, now. I'm not going to say I a don't word. know what you say, but. Yeah. But in, in this whole process, man, I, I want to just hear, if you can evidently share with us some funny stories on this whole production of the flip-flops and whatever, some of the orders, like, what? Is there anything that you can share with us that... <clears throat> I got a not funny story. I got a story about jujitsu saving my life. Can I share that? Please do so, man. So during COVID, um, this was last year, do you guys remember, it was kind of popular on the news where people were going around and just randomly attacking other people? Yes. yes. Well, your boy here was a victim of some of that. Really? So I came out of um, a market in Las Vegas, Sunday morning, like 10 a.m., right? Um, early football season, so real quiet, nobody's around. And I had walked out of the market. When I walked in, there was nobody there. When I walked out, there was nobody there. And as I was walking to my car, just a few feet from the market, somebody came up from behind really quick and smashed me right in the face of the hammer, just completely out of the blue, random act of violence, right? And afterwards, my friends were all like, did you grab your gun? Did you get your knife? What did you do? There was no time for any of that. So immediately, and I'm going some of this off of guessing, so I'm not sure exactly what happened, but um, a guy came up from behind, super random, no confrontation, didn't see him. He was just walking down the street, deranged guy, was just attacking anybody he's seen. Um, and I think there was like a pillar in between us, like a big pylon. So I didn't see him out of the corner of my eye. And I got, you know, situational awareness and all that stuff. Hit me just below my right nostril, cracked my jaw. I wasn't um, days to where like I was stumbly, but days where like I couldn't see anything, you know, white, bloody, all that stuff. And we got in a scuffle right away, underhook, spiked him on his head, choked him unconscious, super, super bad. You know, in class, you'd maybe choke a guy 10%, he taps, maybe in a competition, you get to 20. I squeezed him a thousand percent. As hard as you could possibly squeeze somebody. I I'm, not, I'm not even going to ask if he was, he went out. He, I already know that. He went out immediately and then some. So unfortunately, it broke his neck really bad. Um, cops came. It was a big ordeal. You know, obviously, there was no trouble. But the moral of that was how critically instinctive jujitsu needs to be in a real-world environment. There was no sitting guard. There was no rolling for underhooks. Or, I mean, sorry, rolling for leg locks. It was immediate stand-up, scramble, get on top choke him unconscious. And when I did, I popped up thinking, because Coach Casey's always like, where's his friend? Where's his friend? So I pop up still dazed. Is there another guy? You know, completely out of my mind. I think all my teeth are gone. It was a big mess. But luckily, you know, I had jujitsu to, to that, thank for that, that. That is already part of your instinct. Yep, your reaction exactly. was just on your everyday training and um, was there for you. And man, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty good story. And, and but it's, looking at that story, I'm so glad that it was me and not my mom, yeah, yeah. someone's daughter, Absolutely. a girl, look, a dude who doesn't know it, how to fight. It, it's, um, I always tell people, look, um, you don't have to learn jiu-jitsu. And I hope you never need to use jiu-jitsu. But if you need to, it's better know some jiu-jitsu. And cases like that just unfortunately happen now more often than ever in this present time that we're going through. And uh, 
And I always have that question here. It's so interesting for me to see in different areas also the connection that especially you have with Jiu-Jitsu as part of the challenges and uh, overcome. You train Jiu-Jitsu, you get choked, then you go back in class and do it again. You, you're never giving up. Based on that is who is AG? Who are you? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just a dude who likes making flip-flops. I like hanging out with girls. I like doing jujitsu, And I like hanging out with my friends. Very Southern California kind of vibe, you know? And you know, I, I, I did a lot of research around for people that knows you. And I could not find somebody that does not like you. Mm. I don't know how well you did your research. <laughs> oh, I, I did pretty good, but I think it's uh, everyone everyone that I know and um, every, uh, every time every time I that I see that. every time that I saw you, and and when you one of those events you give me the flip flops was such a surprise for me and I do appreciate that. Is you always smiling, man? You always smile. You always happy, and you always bringing the smile to shake someone's hand, and. I never, in the times that I saw you, saw you mean face or anything, I was smiling. Yeah, I'm, I'm always... never like that. Even when I got hit in the face with a hammer, I was driving home, taking selfies, smiling in the mirror with my whole face shattered. It just, getting mad just doesn't, isn't something that makes any sense to me. Man, and um, I, I don't just hope because I'm certainty that we're going to hear a lot, a lot more from these incredible flip-flops that you made. I think people more and more realize how beneficial that is to people because basically you're wearing on your feet nature. And more and more we need to be close to nature. And uh, if you don't have those flip-flops today, you should run and get one because it's something that will make a difference. And if you have it one and you understand exactly and what I'm talking about here. And you can also find out anyone that has his flip-flops, you can ask them what you think of it. And don't take my words for it. Go and find somebody who has these toehold flip-flops. And not only that, you make more things than just flip-flops. I saw that. You, you kind of find a good way to diversify a little bit. We make some wallets. <clears throat> we, make, um, we make bags too, like women's bags. And... Um, a few different styles of bags. So it's, we get requested to make a lot of stuff, but anything that takes us away from making like flip-flops is a big distraction for me. But the bags we've gotten so many requests for, primarily from my mom. My mom was the big indicator. Son, make me a bag, make me a bag. And it takes tons of time. Like you take thousands of hours to develop a bag and you'll make it, you'll cut it. It'll be off by like a millimeter. You have to go back and do everything over again. It's, and no there's bag, so much. And no bag is the same. No. No, everyone's different, has its own characteristics. Um, we could put your name on it if you want. I mean, that's basic, but we use really high-quality exotic leathers. And then another thing we do, um, and we did this kind of from the from the beginning, is I had a friend, I, sorry, my, my buddy brought um, a big Louis Vuitton duffel bag or garment oh. bag. And he said, hey, this is leather. Can you make a pair of flip-flops out of this? And I was like, that's not leather. And he's like, it's not. And I was like, the trim of a Louis Vuitton bag, like the beige area, that's leather. The brown part where you see the monogram, that's a rubber infused canvas. It's a really great product, super, super high quality. 
And so we cut it up and we made some flip-flops out of that, you know, and I was like, oh my God, am I, in, am I invading on Louis Vuitton's territory? But they don't make flip-flops. And a lot of people um, cut up like their old bags and do stuff with it and, you know, and make earrings and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yes. So we did it and we realized that's the most durable pair of flip-flops we make is the Louis Vuitton ones because that canvas that they have is virtually indestructible. Um, so that was a big part of how we got started is we started cutting those up and people seen them and was like, Oh my God, what is that? The, the other ones I thought were cool, but it was really the Louis Vuitton stuff that made people Man, get really like interested. A few thousand dollars flip flops now. Yeah. Well, we just uh, posted a pair of flip flops that sold for $2,000. They were all hand tooled, um, meticulously like created this beautiful dragon. Uh, there's really, these were like more of a work of art And we thought the doctor we made those for was going to hang them up in his office, but he just sent me a picture of him wearing them on the beach. <laughs> Must be nice. Yeah, he's enjoying them. But a normal pair of flip-flops, you're going to look at two to three hundred bucks, and they go upwards of four to uh, five to six hundred for like really high-end alligator Man, crocodile. But, but the thing is, it lasts forever. Lasts a long time, yeah. And The leather will last forever. The tread is really dependent on how you walk. So if you're a foot dragger, it'll last less. If you, you know, walk normal, it'll last years. But you could always send your flip-flops back in, and we could put new tread on them. So you could keep the same tops you yeah, have and just but, re resole them. But again, the thing is, back pain goes away. And I believe so much in connection with nature that everything will improve in yourself because that's how it get the energies from our hands and our feet. Mm -hmm. And we need to have our feet up, being air. And those flip-flops are something to me that you connect you to earth in such an incredible way. Man, here I am and I met this guy when he was a little kid. He's still a little kid to me. I'm a <laughs> little just, I'm a little older than you guys. I mean, it's been 20 years. Yeah, It's, But, not even, uh, it's, not so, even it's so humbling being on, being on your podcast. Cool, man. Look, What uh, an incredible uh, it, new gym you have too. Thank, thank you for you and being here. And I think it's every person that comes here has such an incredible story to tell. Everyone that comes here and sit down and tell your story to me is a constantly learning process. And I'm very humble. And it's my honor, man, to have you here and uh, share a piece of your life story with us. The success of one failing hiking flip-flops turn, turn out to be such an incredible piece of work and I think has such a similarity with what we do jiu-jitsu because this is not art you're expressing something from your heart and not every person's feet and I love the uh, jiu-jitsu solves everything I like that oh because yeah, it's our logo on the flip-flops jiu-jitsu yeah. solves everything thank you very much AG. thank you guys and I man, really appreciate so this well, thanks for all those flip-flops and any of your listeners want um, a discount just tell them to shoot me a message on Instagram And we'll put together some special rate for you guys as listeners. And yes, and uh, and I'm sure you're going to get some, a lot of orders. But I want people to know the difference. It's not just the flip-flop. It all hold is the flip-flop. That's that's the thing. Thank you very much, AJ. Man, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Gear Required, produced by JJ Grappling Incorporated, engineered by Mike Zavalos, and sponsored by The Art of Marcel Santos Fine Art Gallery, JJM 3.0 Advanced Online Training, Lutigear, Authority Auto, Body LX360, 
and Valley Hot Yoga Wellness Center.